We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello, listeners. Um, We are going to be embarking on probably, um, I would say when I first got into studying the Word, this was far and away probably my favorite book. Um, You know, I, I get made fun of a lot of times, or I used to whenever I was teaching on Sundays and Thursdays and throughout the week on various platforms, various ways. And I would start many passages or many books and I would say this is like my favorite scripture or this is my favorite book and I get made fun of because people would always say you say that about every book um, and, and just the reality is is going through the New Testament the old the Old Testament has its its merit it has its value and it has its place for us to study it so that we can understand and appreciate the New Testament as we're going to even see as we go through the beginning of this book but um, Every book in the New Testament really is is one of my favorites, um, and, and a lot of passages I have. They're just like I have, like some people have their top ten. I have like my top hundred. Uh, I might even have like my top two hundred passages. It's just depending on what season I'm going in, they might have various places. But I do. I, I love Scripture because it's so rich and it's so meaty and it's so applicable for our lives. Um, it is that daily bread that we really get our sustenance from and our livelihood from. But this is a book that has a special place for me because it, it completely um, altered so much of my understanding of the New Covenant, um, my understanding of Christ, of what the Gospel is. This book has been one that has been has held such a, a high place in my heart um, because it, it has helped to bring a deeper understanding and a fuller understanding of the Word of God. And so, with that said, we're going to be getting into a study of the book of Hebrews. Um, Now, a couple things I want us to understand as we go into this one. Uh, I don't even know how long ago it was, but, you know, pretty much once the, once the King James Version got written and, and the Catholics kind of got a hold of that and began to make that um, kind of a funny story um, and how that all started because they were actually dead set against the, the um, uh, translating of the King James Version. But in 1611, when the King James Version got, got taken a hold of, the Catholic Church then began to kind of adopt that along with the Apocrypha and theirs. Um, and they began to write in the beginning of the book of Hebrews a letter by Paul to the Hebrews. Over the course of time, that just then began to be adopted as common belief that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So something I want to clarify in this one is I don't think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Do we know who wrote it? No, because the author doesn't identify himself. But in that, we actually find that it was a very high probability it wasn't Paul. Because if you go back and look at every letter 
that Paul writes, you're going to find him identifying himself in the very beginning of every single letter that he writes. Whether it's to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and to Timothy, our brother. Go back to every book that Paul writes. He always identifies himself and he felt that that was important because there were so many people who were trying to misidentify themselves um, in place of Paul. So he was making sure to clearly identify himself as the author. The book of Hebrews doesn't do that. Let alone, as we're going to find out in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says that they received the gospel secondhand. They were taught the gospel. Paul declares in two different times, I believe it's in Ephesians and Galatians, um, maybe it's Philippians, where he talks about, he says, I didn't receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it by any man. It was a direct revelation by Jesus Christ himself. Let alone, um, uh, aside from those two points, those are two pretty big points. Um, from my understanding, the book of Hebrews was written to Jews, but the author oftentimes quotes the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew writing of the Old Testament. So this, the Septuagint was the Greek translation in which it was translated from the Aramaic or the Hebrew into the Koine Greek, all right, the common language of the day. So before Jesus even came into the scene, the Septuagint was instituted, his birthplace was Alexandria, and it kind of then spread throughout. Jesus would have quoted from the Greek, Jesus would have spoken Greek. Many of the people in Jerusalem would have spoken Greek because of the Roman influence that was there who would have been Greek speaking. Um, and so that's how they would have communicated, how Jesus would have communicated with Pilate. Pilate more than likely did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. He would have spoken Greek. And so Jesus his discourse with him, his dialogue with him would have been through Greek. And why is this important? You're like, why, why, who cares? Um, here's why. Because oftentimes, as we're going to find through the book of Hebrews, the common thought or the common teaching of the day does not always um, stem from truth. You're going to find as we go through this book that there's going to be things we're going to talk about that many people have just passed down through tradition. It's become known as the orthodox Christianity, the orthodox way of thinking of things. And it doesn't always derive from truth. And I see it all throughout churches today in which they teach things that have just been handed down. But they aren't derived from the word. They're derived from a misinterpretation or a a misunderstanding of the word of God. And so, I say all that to say that if, if I was, there's typically four guys who are given credence to writing this book. And I'm spending a little bit more time on this because chapter one, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff there, but it really is summed up in one generalized point, And it's not going to take too long to get through this. Um, but Paul, Luke, Barnabas, and uh, Apollos. Those are the four main guys from my studying of this one that people will credit to say that they're possible authors. The one that seems to make the most sense to me is Apollos. Okay, like I said, this is written to Jews, but it was written with a Greek spin towards it. Okay, it was oftentimes quoted in the Septuagint. That's why if you take what's written here and you go back into the Old Testament, which the Old Testament was derived from Hebrew writings, you're going to find that oftentimes they don't match up word for word. And that's because the Septuagint was what was quoted because the Greek doesn't always translate identically to the Hebrew. And so, uh, from my understanding, there's a very uh, heavy Greek influence to the letter of he- on the letter of Hebrews that was written to Jews. 
Paul oftentimes wrote to Gentiles with a very heavy Jewish influence. Apollos was a man who was very well versed in the Old Testament writings according to the Septuagint. He was, his birthplace was in Alexandria. He was a guy that was taught the gospel through the apostles. Everything that seems to identify the writings of Hebrews seems to match up more with Apollos than, by far more than it does with Paul. I'm not a scholar. One could argue, say, what does it matter? You're often going to hear me say anyways throughout this, the author of Hebrews, I'm, I'm not going to identify it as Paulus because I don't know for certain. What I want us to understand from everything that I just said is that don't let your understanding of truth be derived from tradition or from what has been passed down from age to age to age. Could it be true? Yes. But don't let it derive, or don't let your truth derive from that alone. It needs to derive from a full understanding of the Word of God. So with that, we're going to get into this one. Um, He says this, long ago, in chapter 1, verse 1, here we go, we're going to get started. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So, Jesus teaches a parable about this where God wants to send a message to the people and so he sends it through the mouth of the prophets and then he sends it through the mouth of his son. He said, surely they they didn't listen to the prophets. They actually stoned and killed most of them. Um, So I'm going to send it through my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And they ended up killing him as well. Um, And he tells this story and he's like, guys, do you not realize that the spirit has actually gone out? And I could go into this really cool analogy through Noah's Ark and how the the raven was sent out, darkness covered the earth, and then the spirit was sent out. I'm sorry, a dove was sent out um, from this, from the ark and it came back with nothing. And then it was sent out and came back with an olive branch and then it sent out again and it didn't go, it didn't come back again because it found a home. And, And in my estimation, that's a parallel of God sending out the spirit in these three different ways. One by the mouth of the prophets, or you could say through the angels in the mouth of the prophets, one through the, through his son who then grafted in the Gentiles into this olive tree. And then through the church, whom the Spirit has now found a home in. And it doesn't return void. It doesn't come back in a way because it's now found a place to reside in us. And so the Spirit is the dwelling place uh, for that in the church. And so I could go into this cool little thing about that one, but I'm not going to. I'm going to say simply this. The Spirit was sent out. The Word of God was sent out through the mouth of the prophets and the angels through the Old Testament, all throughout it. And now, as John 1 says... He sent out his word, his spirit, through the mouth of his son. And his son, as Isaiah 58 talks about, and says that the word is sent out, it will not return void. That's actually a prophecy of Christ. The word of God. God had a message. It, it, you know, I used to think that John 1, when he talks about it in the beginning, was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Um, and then it was, you know, uh, made flesh, dwelt among us, that, that whole concept. I used to think that Jesus was like the embodiment of the Old Testament in human form. And maybe there's a semblance of truth to that, depending on how you look at it. But I think it's a, a lot more simple than that. I think simply in the beginning, God sent out his word. When he had a message to deliver to mankind, he sent that word through the voice of the prophets or through the angels. 
the intermediaries that basically carried the messenger, the, the messenger uh, carried the, the message of God as messengers to the people of God. And I think all it simply is in John 1 is that God had a message to now send to his people and he chose Jesus to send that message. I think it's just Jesus was the messenger that God says, I have a word for mankind to show them that the time is fulfilled, that I am now bringing that Redeemer, I'm bringing the Christ, I'm bringing the Messiah, and He is now coming because the time has been fulfilled. Those 400 years where my voice was absent from the people of God, it wasn't there, just like it was foreshadowed back with Egypt whenever the people of God did not hear the voice of God for those 400 years. And then, in another account, it talks about 430 years, which is interesting because it took 30 years for Jesus to then come onto the scene and start start speaking the word of God. The foreshadow is, is that after those 400 or 430 years when Jesus actually started speaking this message of God, God had a message for his people and Jesus was the one who carried it. And so this concept, he says, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. As you, If you were with us through the Colossians study, you would know that uh, that same exact thing was there, and you're going to say the same terminology here. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why Jesus can say, if you want to see the Father, look at me. I am the exact replica of God the Father in his nature. I am the exact imprint of his nature. His character is in me. You want to see what God thinks about sin? Look at me. You want to see how God loves? Look at me. You want to see how God would function in this situation? Look at me. I am the exact imprint of his nature. That's why Jesus can say, if you want to see the Father, Philip, was it Philip or Nathaniel? I don't remember which one it was. He said, then look at me. Because I'm the exact imprint of his nature. He says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this is such a cool thing because the universe is huge. Now, I don't know the last time that you checked into stars and planets and galaxies and all this stuff. It is huge. Like, we can't even comprehend how big this is. Just with our um, and the advances we've made in technology with, my, you know, telescopes and being able to have satellite imagery and all this stuff, and the stars that we have... Um, you know, uncovered and found. I remember watching this thing by Louis Giglio where he, he was putting these stars in comparison to the sun and the earth and all this stuff. Um, and he was like, how big these things are. And he is on this big jumbotron and he's cycling through. You have the earth and then you have all this and, and then he goes to the sun and then all these stars we found. He gets to Betelgeuse and he gets to Canis Majoris and he gets to, um, you know, various ones, uh, Sirius, um, all these stars and he gets to like this the biggest star and he says did you know that on this huge jumbotron where this star is that you couldn't even come up here with a sharpie and approximate the size of the sun in comparison to this star and the earth in comparison to the sun is is crazy it's like it's, it's not even close in the comparison the universe is huge and it says that the word of christ it says it upholds the universe. It holds it together. Isn't that an amazing thought whenever we think of how insignificant we are? And yet it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How much more can he uphold us? 
I mean, I want you to think about that, Connor. When you're going through a rough time right now, you might be listening to this, and you might be going through a rough time right now. You might have lost a loved one. You might have you know, lost your job. You might, I don't know what the situation is in your life. And maybe you're just struggling with life in general. Maybe you're just having a hard time. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with self-pity. Maybe you're struggling just because situations don't seem to be working out the way that they should. Let me just tell you, as Romans 8 says, I know a lot of people say, hey, don't quote me this verse right now because I don't want to hear it. Well, let me just tell you, the Word of God brings life. And the best way to bring life into your situation if you're struggling is to bring the author of life into that. And he wrote this word for you in Romans 8 that he says that all things work together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. If you love him above all as you should if you are loving him the way you should and you are walking in the purpose that he's given to you through in accordance with the word of God then it will work out together for good because the word of God's power the word of Christ's power can uphold you through it all that's good news I want you to think about that the next time you see the sunrise, the next time you see a shooting star, the next time you see, you know, a storm abated, the next time you see anything and everything in the universe as we look out into the skies, you see it functioning the way that it always has. Know that it is the word of Christ that keeps it such. And if he can do it for it, and he can have the ocean's tide come and go at his will, and he can do it in your life if you're willing to endure through it and faithfully abide in him through it all. That's good news. So it goes on and he says, after making purification for sins, which is a Jewish term that if you were a Jew listening to this, you would know exactly what he's talking about because the Old Testament did have a means to have a purification for sins. Uh, you had you know, things on the Day of Atonement where sacrifices were made and it says, and you'd be forgiven. But here's the problem, as we're going to find out in Hebrews 10. It could never break the curse of sin because there was a constant reminder. You were never going to be able to conquer sin. You would never be able to overcome it to the level that Jesus did simply by living under the law of Moses. And so he says, after making purification for sins, this was after the cross, he says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so as it talks about in Psalm 8 that he was made lower than the angels. Uh, whenever you know, he's you know, there with God in the beginning. Um, he, and, and when he came down to earth he was made lower than the angels. He was made like us in every respect as we're going to find out in Hebrews chapter 2 and 4. In every respect he was made just like us. There was no advantage that he carried over us. Okay. He had the fullness of God in him. He had the fullness of the Spirit in him. And he walked in the fullness of that, having no advantage over us. That's what Hebrews 2 and 4 says. He had no advantage over us. And that's why he can become the example for us because he set the bar of the faith at the highest level, as Hebrews 12 talks about, so that we could look at him and say, if Jesus did it through the power of grace, through the power of God in his life, then so can I. And that's good news. That's why it says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's why we have the commission in Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God. That's why we have the commission in 1 Peter 1, uh, 13-15 when he says, be holy in all of your conduct. That's why we can abide in the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 when he says that this is the will of God, your holiness, your hagiosmos, your holiness, you're set apart perfectly from the world. That's the will of God for your life. And we can do it 
because he did it. That's good news. And it says that Christ has become so much more superior than the angels did. Their message proved reliable. So if their message proved reliable and a more supreme um, reliability has now come on the scene, has come on stage, then we have reason to have hope that what Jesus promises for our life would come true. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All prophecies, you're going to find most of these written in Psalms. Uh, you know, Psalm 2-7, Psalm 89-26-27, Psalm 104-4, Psalm 45-6. All these various ones, if you've got cross-references um, in your Bible, notes for it, you can go back and look at it. Or just Google it, that's the fun of Google. You can type in these things, and it just, boom, pops up the verse for you right there. He goes on and he says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So this concept of the firstborn is a huge concept all throughout scripture, and I don't have time to go into it on this one. Maybe we'll get into it another time, because Hebrews is chock full of this concept of the firstborn and the secondborn. But here's what I'll say. In Romans 5, it talks about the firstborn man being Adam, and he brought death. The secondborn Adam, which has now become the firstborn among many brothers, which is where Romans 8 comes into play, um, stay with me on this. It can be a confusing concept, but it, it really is not. It's a simple. Adam was the firstborn. Jesus became the secondborn. But in him being the secondborn, he then started the new covenant as the firstborn. Okay? So Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. And you look, old covenant brings death. It's the ministry of condemnation written on tablets of stone, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says. But the new covenant in the blood of Christ, it brings life. You have the old and the new. You have the firstborn and the secondborn. This concept that's there. He says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God... Remember, who he's talking to? He's talking to the Son. He's talking about, you know, about the Son in this concept. Because the Son loved righteousness and he hated wickedness, God, his God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What's he saying in that concept? He says, look, God's throne is forever and ever. Okay? Where does Jesus sit? At the right hand of the Father. And he says, his throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. And he goes on now talking about the son. He says, you, God's son, have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And because you did that, because you chose in this life to love righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore, God, your God, Jesus Christ, has anointed you with the oil of gladness Beyond your companions. And let me just say that in the same way that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and saying that if you are the Son of God, then such and such, fill in the blank, right? Three temptations that's there, and every time Jesus responded with the Word of God. Let me just tell you, he's saying the same thing to you. Satan is coming saying that if you are a Son of God, then fill in the blank. Test him. Put Christ to the test, put God to the test. 
That's the same type thing. And I want to tell you the same thing is for you in this passage. If you will love righteousness and hate wickedness, then God, your God, He will anoint you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. You see, this is one of those if and then passages. It was true for Jesus and it will be true for us. This is why Hebrews 5 talks about when he says that he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you choose righteousness, if you choose the right way and choose to walk in it and you choose to abide in the will of God and you choose to hate wickedness and sin, then God will give you a joy that's not humanly possible otherwise. Because it will be the joy of the Lord that will be your strength. It won't be manifest off of circumstances. It won't be manifest off of situations of when things are going favorably in your life and all of a sudden you're happy. No, it'll be a joy that takes it through. I remember watching this. It's a cartoon thing from Voice of the Martyrs about a guy named Samuel Morris. It's such a fascinating story um, that this man had as he you know, grew up in an indigenous tribe and came to know Christ in a crazy way. And then he got on this boat and he came over to New York to find a guy because he wanted to know more about the word of God and the ways of Christ. And, and everything that he was in that village, they couldn't teach him anymore. So he comes over and he, he has the crazy experiences on the boat and he finds this guy um, finally and he's, he's at this college. So he goes to this college and the college is going under and so finally um, he has such an influence on everybody around him because of this joy that's in his life because he knows Jesus Christ. That he changes everybody's life around him. And one day he's, he's supposed to be speaking at something for this college and, and it's a crazy um, snowstorm blew in and he goes in, in his excitement because he was a little late. He ran without a jacket to go to this place. And he gets there, ends up contracting pneumonia, and he's on his deathbed. And he's sitting there laying in bed, and he's actually got tears in his eyes. And as the movie recounts it, this animated cartoon, um, one of his really good friends comes in. He says, hey, Samuel, it's okay. I'm here with you. You don't have to cry. And he goes, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Um, these aren't tears of pain. They're tears, tears of joy. Because I'm going to go be with Jesus soon. And I can't wait. I mean, that's, that's a joy that doesn't come from any human's soul. That's a joy that is supernatural. And it was because he loved righteousness, and I'll say the source of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful concept. And I want you to see here that what he's sta- stating here is that if you choose, as, as Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is the person of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. So if you are seeking Christ and you're seeking the ways of Christ and this new covenant that he tells us to be built with Christ as the cornerstone and the apostles' teaching, you seek to do what he's telling you to do in the word. And you hate sin and the things that go against it, you will have a joy beyond all your companions. So the promise that was given to Jesus is the same promise that's given to us. He says, And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character never changes. He says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all, meaning the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He says, angels are there to serve those who will inherit salvation. But Jesus, that's not his purpose. Did he come to serve and not be served and give his life as a ransom for many? Absolutely, that was his purpose when he came down to earth. But now... But now he sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father and all things have been placed under his feet. Now he reigns. And the cool thing is, is that Ephesians 2 says that we've been seated with him in heavenly places. By faith, we reign with him. This is all really good news that the author of Hebrews is setting the stage here to say, look, the angels were good and they had a message that was reliable. That what they said came true. And what they told man to do happened if man listened to it. Say Joshua. When the angel told him, hey, march around this wall seven times on the seventh day, do it this way, and the walls will fall. The people of God followed, and they did it, and it happened. Let me just tell you, Jesus is much more reliable than them. So if we have a promise from God through Christ who's delivered these promises and the message that God had for us, you can know that it's going to happen. That's why it talks about in Hebrews 6, excuse me, in Hebrews 6 it says we have an anchor for our soul. That we can cast that anchor down from that boat and no matter what storms come our way, no matter what happens, we know that anchor will hold no matter what if you are willing to endure. If you are willing to love God and walk in the purpose that he's given to you, you can know that that anchor will remain true and it will not waver. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so you can claim those promises. This is not a health, wealth, prosperity one because that's absent of the cross. You want to claim any promise from God, it's going to be inclusive of a cross. Go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and the, and the apostles and their message that they gave to those in Corinth. I'm not talking about claiming a health, wealth, prosperity message. It is anything but that. What I'm talking about is that the promises that God has made for you of his joy, his peace, his mercy, his forgiveness, the salvation that he says, the the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, the redemption of our bodies, the adoption as sons that is coming in the end, as Paul talks about in Romans 8.23, that we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'm talking about those promises. You can know that that anchor will hold true for them. No matter what goes on in your life. And so this chapter is set in the stage for essentially the supremacy of Christ's message over that of the angels from of old. Specifically in the prophets. Um, We can know that his message will be true. And so as we continue through this one, we're going to go into chapter 2. And our next one is going to be a little bit more detailed, a little bit more in-depth than what the first one was. But I will tell you, as we go through this one, uh, the whole book of Hebrews, all 13 chapters of it, it is going to be one of those books that will challenge you. And it will, um, (laughs) hopefully it will help give you a fuller picture as we go through this of the supremacy of Christ over that of the things of old. And of our responsibility in Christ to the things of the new.
Y'all be blessed.